RA Exchange. Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Mackenzie Ward to the podcast, a scholar and raver who has written extensively about the world of dance music and its surrounding subculture as an independent author and as a professor of media and cultural studies at the New School in New York City, where she's also the program director of the Gender Studies Department. In her own words, her purpose in her work is to think critically about contemporary life so that we can find our own way towards crafting better lives, singly and together. Most recently, Work penned the book Raving, a first-person account of her experiences in the Brooklyn queer and trans rave scene. Work's writing is a unique blend of memoir and literary criticism, and Raving takes readers straight into the heart of undisclosed locations around New York nightlife. Raving to techno is an art and a technique at which queer and trans bodies might be particularly adept, she writes, but which is for anyone who lets the beats seduce them. In her conversation with the Brooklyn-based DJ Elise Courier, who also makes an appearance in the pages of Raving under their artist moniker Lychee, Work talks about how the book, which came out right before the summer, came to be. Raving is her love letter to people who rave, she says, especially trans ravers. She explains how entire chapters of the book wrote themselves out in her head, and how she carefully chose 26 characters, all of which have a letter as a name, to represent the friends and acquaintances of hers from the world of queer nightlife. Her own relationship with raving started when she was still living in Australia. At the time, she says, she had not yet transitioned and was experiencing an ambient sense of gender dysphoria that only dancing and nightlife could help placate. She didn't actually transition until she was in her late 50s in 2017. I'm one of those people who can't really shut off the internal monologue and it goes very, very fast. But on a good morning dancing, I'm sort of not present in it. And I'd be just dancing and whole chapters of this fucking book would just write themselves in my head and I just had to let them go by. And just think, oh, so it can be done? You know, like, it could be done. I don't have to remember any of this. All I have to remember is there's a passage through whatever it is I'm trying to write. Reactions to the book have been polarizing. While it's been written about in publications like The New Yorker, The Guardian, and The Nation, some people in the underground have criticized work for quote-unquote theorizing queer nightlife. Work discusses this in depth, as well as her intention not to be extractive in writing about clubbing. She and Courier also discuss what it means to bring club culture into academia, working with fellow rave scholar Madison Moore, who's been on the exchange recently, and how parties can serve the communities they're designed to serve instead of exacerbating existing social structures that already exist. There's a lot of really fascinating information packed into this interview, so thanks so much for tuning in, and please pick up a copy of Raving if you haven't already. Without further ado, here is Mackenzie Wark. Hi, I'm Elise Courier. As a DJ, I go by Lychee. I'm excited to be here for the RA Exchange podcast today with Mackenzie Work, whose book Raving for the Practices series from Duke University Press was published this March. I'm going to start with a pretty easy question. Um, how was your weekend and what was the last rave that you made it to? Uh, the weekend was uh, Labor Day, so I was just out on Long Island. We did a little impromptu dance party in the living room. And I was going to play a mix, and 
for boring reasons, it wouldn't play through the speakers. So I had to do the one thing that I said I would never do, which was DJ for three other people, <laughs> just, just like bigger tracks off my phone. It's embarrassing. But that, that was my, my weekend. The last um, party I went to, well, was Honcho, was Camp Out. It would be so great if I could say it was when you played Honcho, but it was actually Barella Great, like on the Sunday. That was my last my, my last dancing. Oh, apart from Bossa, I went to Bossa. Like, I, I guess like a lot of people, you come back from uh, Camp Out and need to just like not move your body for a minute, but then it's kind of like I need to actually go and move again. <laughs> and how was Honcho for you? Um, it was my first one. Um, I loved it. I had a fabulous time. I really didn't pace myself quite like I should have. So the third day was, you know, like a little low energy. But, um, yeah, like being around 2,000 gay and queer people in the middle of, you know, trees and sky and water was, yeah, kind of really delightful. And I guess since we're talking about Hancho, I know you did a talk there and did some reading there. And you've done a lot of that in other spaces as well. Was it, how is it different for you doing that at a space like Honcho versus in some of the other kinds of spaces you've done that? Yeah, it was, uh, I had an hour and a half on a, on the Saturday morning and I surprised people were awake for it, which was really lovely. And many people had read the book. And so the conversation was sort of very informed. And um, I have um, pieces of the book that I perform with uh, backing tracks um, by No Peak Hours. And it was nice to do those two pieces with people who, um, yeah, are, are dancers. You know, we had people show up who were dancers and ravers. And, yeah, it was kind of an interesting conversation. I have to retire at least one of those pieces because I've done them <laughs> at least since March and maybe even before that. Um, but, yeah, that was really lovely. And, like, the book was meant to be a bit of a love letter to people who rave, a little bit centred on, you know, Brooklyn queer and trans ravers. But it's just really delightful to see people posting on Instagram about it in Europe and Asia and all over the place. And I'm kind of like, oh, like somehow it just sort of resonates. And um, that Honcho is just like dealing with that in person, people who um, have had some interesting relationship to it. How did your own relationship with raving start and where do you think that is going for you? There's sort of like two starts and one was in the 90s when I didn't really understand it. Like I didn't sort of kind of get it. I'm from Australia and in Sydney we had what we call doof rather than technar, but it's sort of very much the same thing and particularly bush doof where, you know, you would be out in the, the eucalyptus and all that uh, and you're like driving around trying to find these things from map references and things like that and there were warehouse parties and, and so on. But there was a sort of clear divide between like gay and straight dance spaces and I didn't quite know I was trans at the time and I just didn't really seem to fit. I love dancing, but I didn't quite fit in either of those universes. And because I was involved in uh, sort of like media art and activism and stuff in the 90s, that took me to Europe and that was adjacent to people who loved techno and had embraced that and realised only after I was researching it, oh, Tracer was one of the places I got taken. But I didn't really quite get what was going on in that space. It was actually kind of overwhelming. And Amsterdam had things like that as well, about which which is less mythologized maybe than Berlin. So that was like my full start was kind of like, oh, yeah, this seems like this thing that's happening, but I don't really quite understand it. And then I came back in, what, 2018 or something uh, after I came out and my trans mom was, you know, I was talking about how 
there's just some low-level ambient gender dysphoria nothing works on except dancing. And she was like, you are coming to the rave tonight. Bitch, be at my apartment at 2 a.m. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and the next thing I know, I'm dancing to Juliana Huxtable, you know, in a, uh, a space that's now gone. So I'm happily naming it. it was Muse. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I really kind of get this now. I think I love this. And so I've been back ever since. And when you first started raving, did you ever try to write about it or think about documenting it in any way back in that initial phase? No, I wouldn't have had the context or the tools. I'm kind of a slow learner, you know. I didn't get that it was becoming a thing at the time. I sort of like I missed it. Like I got it. It's an embarrassing thing I confess as a writer, but I just missed it. You know, um, there's ways in which I think we can get nostalgic about that time in ways that aren't helpful. It can be disabling and. Um, what's happening now is sort of more interesting to me with all due respect to the ancestors and the forebears, like goes without saying, but let's focus on what we make now. And um, how and when did you kind of start documenting your rave experiences? And I know you talk about this a little in the book and you talked about this a little at Honcho as well, but what does that documentation process look like for you? Yeah, I, I kind of um, was very tempting to get my notebook out at the party and I had to like resist that urge a lot. Um, I felt I just want to be in this. Like I'm a kind of compulsive writer. I kind of, you know, it's a practice. I do it all the time. Uh, so it was sort of letting go of that and uh, just letting myself have that experience. And I'm one of those people who can't really shut off the internal monologue and it goes very, very fast. You know, like this is hyperactive voice in my head. Uh, I can't really stop it. But on a good morning dancing, I'm sort of not present in it, if that makes any sense. It just goes by and I don't have to be present for it or attend to it. Uh, and I'd be just dancing and whole chapters of this fucking book would just write themselves in my head and I just had to let them go by and just think, oh, so it can be done? You know, like it could be done. I don't have to remember any of this. All I have to remember is there's a passage through whatever it is I'm trying to write. So, yeah, I was trying not to do anything but be dancing and present and then to sit down later. You know, kind of not represent what that was but what extrudes out of it into writing and sort of more the practice. And um, moving now more into sort of the book itself and the reception of the book and how it's kind of spread. I was thinking about this because I was listening to one of the recent RA Exchange podcasts with Madison Moore, who you've done some work with before, and they were talking about bringing the rave world into the museum world and kind of how the significance of the club operates in those spaces and bringing that culture to people who might not be able to make it to the party. For them, I think that was a little bit about making the experience more accessible. And something I was thinking about was your book got a lot of press coverage across a lot of different kinds of publications. So not just publications targeted to the music scene, but things like literary and art world publications and kind of bigger mainstream publications like The Guardian. Um, when you were working on the book, did you have any intention for the book to reach those wider audiences? I, I was really hoping Ravis would read it, you know, and that's who it was really written for and designed for. And I was hoping people would like it. Some people, like, hate it, but that's also a relation to it. Like, sometimes you have to be the object that people are just going to hate. <laughs> Who is this bitch and why does she think she can theorise what we do? You know, and it's like, well, okay, that's also a reaction, you know. 
I was trying to be a little discreet in the book. Like I don't want it to be like uh, for tourists. I don't want it to be extractive. There's a way writing inevitably is. One has to cop to that. But it's a little on the DL as to like where these things are or what they were named. There's 26 characters in the book for letters of the alphabet. There's no names or description, not much description of people. And they're sort of based on friends and acquaintances in that world. Although if if people ask me, you know, am I R or am I N, I always answer yes, because it might sort of partly be true, you know, like I wanted to write more about the distribution of the relations between people than characters, you know, it's a different kind of writing. You know, I can't help but promote books because, you know, I feel like you have a partnership with the publisher and, you know, uh, it's in everybody's interest for the thing to work, you know. It's less about making money because you do not make money as a writer, but for it to be viable, that there's books like this. So, yeah, I was a little wary of the attention it got, but also, you know, it was in New York Magazine, New Yorker, The Nation, and Interview, and those are the four magazines that raised me as a writer and were like why I wanted to come to New York and all that. So it was sort of like, yes, I'll take that. (laughs) The thing that happens is that, it gets slotted into existing narratives and tones. This is like constant struggle. So I thought the Nation interview I did with um, Jeff Mack and Zari Buri was like really interesting. We're talking about how like rave is just not utopia, is it? You know, like we need these other languages and so on. So what does the headline say? Rave is utopia, you know, and it's like, oh, you know, like we all know that's not helpful, but you get slotted into these existing languages, you know. But, you know, it's like if people find things through that filter, that's okay, you know, if it leads people to the book. What do you think it means to write a book about raving for an academic press, knowing that academia can be a very loaded? I mean, you're very involved in academia. You work in academia, so I'm sure you also are kind of sitting between the two worlds. Do you have any feelings about how those can intersect and what it means to bring raving into that world or theorize it in a certain way? I mean, I'm teaching... Um, nightlife stuff to uh, undergrads at the new school at the moment. And one thing I ask in the first class is, and people don't have to declare anything about this if they don't want to, but I ask, well, you know, would you want to raise your hands anybody who has been harassed in nightlife? And it's like 95% of the class is always like, well, fuck yeah, you know. And not just cis women and trans people. There's like a lot of people have had those experiences, you know. And, and so I said, all right, well, I can't stop that happening, you know. But how do we negotiate these things? You know, these are like 18 to 22-year-olds, like, who are new to the city. Like, here's how to be safe. Um, here's how you can learn how to enjoy these spaces, but also contribute to them, like, you know, like teaching that. It's like, this is going to be much better if you think of yourself as contributing to this rather than just consuming it and so on. So, yeah, I don't know. I think there's a space for pedagogy around nightlife and, you know, how to, you know, get more out of those experiences. I was more interested in the book being read in a sort of para-academic way. You know, it has like a ferocious bibliography and there's like a glossary of terms and stuff, but some of that apparatus you don't have to read, you know. It's just there if you wanted to know more, you know. Like here are all of the other things that I drew from. And the sort of glossary of concepts is more, it's kind of like comic, you know. Like, how do you get, I don't know how many terms are in it, it's like 30 different, like, terms. You know, it's sort of like a joke taxonomy of language that you could apply to it. So, yeah, I think you have to tread a little cautiously in making things 
objects of study and I sort of wanted to turn it inside out and turn the tip the resources of the university back into a cheap little paperback, you know, like 15 bucks with colour pictures. Come on, it's a fucking bargain, you know, <laughs> and you'll get this academic apparatus without having to go into debt to figure it out. And um, something you mentioned was the idea of contributing rather than consuming. I think that kind of ties into some of the archetypes that you talk about in the book. So you talk about these archetypes of like the punisher and the coworker and the different kinds of people who go to raves and also how some of the people who go to the rave are the people who really need it and versus the more kind of like consumer mindset, I guess. Could you, just because some people listening to this might not be as familiar with that, could you speak a little more to that? It's one of the things people related to most, I think. And so, you know, if you live in the city, particularly you sort of understand the the immediate social environment through kind of like social types, you know, what kind of people am I dealing with here? That can go horribly wrong in the direction of stereotype and so on. But yeah, you're in a nightlife space or at the rave, you will meet punishers who come in a few flavours, but, you know, punishers often seem to think that their enjoyment of the space has to be at your expense. You know, like it's a sort of zero-sum game. For them to have fun, they've got to kick you out of the way. And we've all experienced punishers, you know. Often, but not always, you know, like very entitled white cis men, there are other kinds of punisher. Slightly more subtle experience is co-worker, and it's somebody for whom uh, nightlife is a release from the pressures of work and daily life, uh, and they tend to go a little too hard and co-worker in the sense that they want a story they can tell around the water cooler on Monday. It's like, oh, my God, I had this amazing, I went to this rave, it was insane, I got totally wasted, you know. So it's like that sense of not really being able to, like, ease into it at all, you know. So, yeah, one thing I was doing is like, yeah, how do we identify these different uses of the space? And, you know, I'm clearly part co-worker. I have a day job. I don't live in nightlife. I really try not to be a punisher, <laughs> you know, but everybody probably has been on a bad night. Like we've all misbehaved at some point. Let's just know that about ourselves, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, like there are ways, and, you know, they're more recognisable types. There's club kids and there's circuit gays and... No one need be reducible to those types, but I, I think it's everybody's first approximation to who's around me and do I want to be dancing around these people or do I want to be somewhere else, you know? Let me find the little pocket uh, where people know how to do this. And kind of related to that, when you're going out for a night, do you ever sort of set an intention for what kind of role you want to be playing? Like, do you ever go out and think you're more going for the documentation or kind of like the ethnography purpose or are you generally just going out as a partier and seeing what unfolds? Oh, I really just want to go and do the thing and <laughs> be with people, you know. But, you know, I also have a column in Document Journal called Day Tripping and I've been writing, I'm a working writer, I've been writing in the column format, you know, since 1990, you know, and you really start to size everything up. Oh, there's a thousand words in that. I could, you know, it's like getting out of that mindset's really hard. And I don't want it to be, you know, sort of like extracting material. One promoter asked me not to write about their parties and I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. If you ask, I won't do it, you know. I co-curate this series, Writing on Raving, with um, Jeff Mack and Zoe Beery and, um, that's when thing comes up is like of the types in nightlife, writers is one, like there's a few of us. And what's the ethics of that and what's our responsibility to it? What's the boundaries around it are, I think, conversations to have. 
yeah, something we talked about a little bit is um, kind of accessibility of raves and who might be left out. I think that can also apply to whose stories get told. So your book is pretty focused on your own experience with raving, mostly in New York City, mostly among a specific community. Um, I do think like in some ways, the title raving and the way it's been framed by some press could make it seem like it's like a broader treatise on raving and it's current state or history. So I guess first off, can you speak to that a little bit? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about if there are other perspectives that you wish we could hear more of and how mm. other people can get more involved yeah. in that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a book really about a pocket universe in mostly Brooklyn, mostly techno, mostly parties where there's a sort of queer and trans flavor. There's a whole other nightlife scene that centers the dolls. And I didn't write about that because I feel like I'm, you know, all dolls are trans women, not all trans women are dolls. And I'm kind of not. So I didn't want to sort of be writing in that space. It's, I don't think it's my story to tell. Yeah, it's funny, like the book came out in Italian and, and there they're like, what do you mean these are raves? People buy tickets? And I'm like, oh, no, they're renegades. Like some of the parties I wrote about are renegades, uh, you know, in the language we use here where, yeah, there's no tickets, the space uh, is just randomly seized and so on. So, yeah, it's a little bit focused on a particular kind of event, particular definition of rave, and there's many others. So, yeah, it's not a treatise. It's about a practice, though, and I think there's ways that the local version of it is sort of translatable into, you know, it can be paralleled with different experiences of it at different times. We're doing a, a book out of the Writing on Raving series, and I don't name individual writers because, like, there's about 20 of them, but it's a question that we sort of continually ask ourselves in putting, there's usually about six readers 10 minutes each in the show. There's one tonight, actually. And it's a question we're, we're always asking is what are the different sorts of voices? Like who are the people, um, you know, are, you know, kind of professionalised writers who happen also to be ravers? Like who are people who um, are nightlife workers? Like who are the people who might not necessarily write but are deeply knowledgeable about some aspect of it? what are the kinds of difference that we can think about here and what are the less obvious ones, like things about age as a kind of difference. So I think that's sort of like part of that writing on raving project is digging a little bit for different voices and, yeah, who's not usually given the time and space and resources to express that. There's also, I co-edited with Madison Moore, an issue of EFLUX Journal that we end up calling Black Rave. And the, one of the virtues of that is it pays contributors. And I really would rather do things where that's the case. Writing and raving is more, this is community, you know, that that one was like, I got a budget. So, and that's a little bit cultivating work out of people who've never been thoroughly edited before, you know, like I've never had someone walk them through writing in detail. You know, and I got to do that in some of those pieces because I have those skills and it would be really great if you can, you know, give, you know, <laughs> work with people and how to not be patronising about that and how not to be the outside expert. There's all sorts of, you know, minefield questions about how to bring that knowledge and skill and make it useful. 
Are there any kinds of perspectives that you think are kind of lacking or that you wish we could hear more of or that you aim to center more? You know, I was just thinking what's disability in, in nightlife um, and who would be interesting about that. Um, I'm also doing a, a thing for um, Factory International in Manchester. Uh, I'm like, I didn't quite get that voice. I was looking for that and quite find it. Um, so, yeah, what, so that's, that came up when I was doing press around the book and there's kinds of disability that Rave really actually works for and is good for. Like it's not a space that's good for people with mobility issues, which includes me. You know, I, I, I have that uh, and it can be challenging. But there actually are forms of disability it actually is like a helpful space for and like what's that voice and what would be that conversation. Um, that's one that uh, I'd like to tease out more. So you said it's possible in the book, but certainly in these editorial projects to centre uh, black voices and black queer and trans voices was very central to uh, how we thought about writing on raving, how Madison and I thought about that project and how I worked on the Factory Plus project. And um, are there any current writers who are writing about raving who you would recommend that people look into who are working now? Uh, stay tuned for writing on raving the book. Check out the Black Rave collection on Eflux, which is free. It's a you can just Google Eflux and Black Rave, and that'll show up. Have a look out for Free Your Body on Factory Plus. Uh, it's another great collection of voices. And I'll just mention one book I know is forthcoming is Jeffrey Mack has a book that from Bloomsbury that, among other things, is it's more about um, Berlin club life. But I love Jeff's uh, perspective on that. I'm uh, also looking forward to Emily Witt's book on some of this stuff. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about what that one's going to be like, but looking forward to that, just in terms of things that are like book shaped that I know are coming. But there really could stand to be another dozen books on contemporary rave culture. Uh, there's a thing called Velocity Press is doing like historic stuff, and I love that that exists. But, you know, you go into most bookstores and look at the music section and it just sort of like misses a whole chunk of, you know, sort of musical experiences in a way. Like there are books about techno and rave and all that, but it's not like there's the expansive shelf that there is on every other form of music, you know. Like, well, let's fill in the blanks. Like, let's write all that. So it actually was a reason to be happy that uh, raving sold well. It's just like there's a market, you know. (laughs) Like people are curious. People want a language for thinking about these experiences. Thinking about people who might want to start documenting their rave experiences, is there anything you would say about how people can do that respectfully and in a way that's not extractive? You know, I'd spent as long thinking about um, ethics is too narrow a word. It's almost like a politics of writing as actually writing the the fucking manuscript, you know. And, and But I think to sort of start with that, like how is it... Because, like, there's a reason that some of the worlds we might want to go dancing in are not all that visible to the outside world. Like, there's semi-transparency around some and a lot of opacity around others, you know. Yeah, how to sort of preserve that intimacy a little bit without making that seem like a report from something that's exclusive. I kind of learned a little from Madison about that, Madison Moore, who um, was teaching in Richmond, Virginia 
for a while where like people don't have access to scenes like and and Madison was like it's not about you know getting past the velvet rope it's more like what can you make you know so how can you orient writing towards this is not something to go consume it's something that people make and you can kind of make it anywhere you know so yeah if you're not in a major city it's more like all right who's got a basement who's got the best stereo who can actually put songs together um let's fix the lighting you know like how do you just make whatever space is available one that has you know those sort of qualities of sort of smearing the edges of subjectivity between people through music through dance you know through collective experience um yeah i don't want to say it's magical you know but it's there's something special about that i think that the idea you just mentioned about intimacy versus exclusivity is really interesting i just started reading um luis manuel garcia misperta's book together somehow Mm. and they talk a little in the first i think it's in one of the first chapters about this idea that raves kind of create this so-called utopian space, but often that's through a certain degree of exclusion and who can access that. And I think what you said about intimacy versus exclusivity is an interesting way to frame that. So sort of taking it beyond the book or beyond writing, like how do you think spaces can, I guess, serve the communities, the people who really need the rave and the communities that they're meant for while um, not replicating like problematic social structures that exist because obviously these things are happening in a society where, you know, people talk about door policies and how that Mm. can create a really dreamy space for the people who get in sometimes, but who gets left out. Like, do you have any thoughts on that on a broader scale? Yeah. And, and, you know, face check at door has got to be one of the hardest jobs. And we both know people who do that. And there's always someone on Instagram railing about how they got left out you know and sometimes you think thank god (laughs) but sometimes you think well i don't know the logic but there's there's door people i trust to have good filters around that and a thing that came up sometimes or has been coming up is often people want to say look it should be for everybody in theory i kind of agree with that but sometimes if it's for everybody then i can't go everybody excludes me a lot of times so yeah how do you create Spaces that do have a little bit of a filter and a little bit of a learning curve, you know, such that, you know, you find, you know, that seemingly more secret thing when you're ready, you know, like when you're ready, when you learn a few things. Like, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But, and it's nothing very sophisticated about it. It's just that you'll know how to handle yourself. And you kind of, you get to at least recognize some people when you see them, you know. One thing it's about is trust, that you can be around people. Like, that seems very intimate. Like, it's more intimate than sex sometimes, you know? Like, so how can you feel like you trust the people around you is that you can have that relationship to your own body and an intimacy with other bodies that you don't touch? So, yeah, I got a useful term from um, a lot of the language in the book I got from other people, and I've tried to acknowledge that as much as possible. Nick Bazzano gave me this idea of reparative discrimination. You know, like, well, who are the people who are discriminated against everywhere else? And let's discriminate in favour of them in the creating of a little space here and sort of dusty corners of Brooklyn where somebody can rent a space and throw a party from midnight till nine in the morning, you know. Because there is a space for everybody. Like, there's plenty of clubs in New York. Most cities have got a club, 
you can go to, but for some of us, you need something a little different to that. Yeah. Something I think about sometimes is like, even at events that I go to, sometimes I have to ask myself, like, is this event really for me or centering me? Or is this event really for someone else? And sometimes I work a lot of parties, so I'll end up mm -hmm. at a party that I'm happy it exists, but it's not really for me. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about like the different ways that can play out. So sometimes it's like, Everyone here is a lot younger and it's not really my music, but the people know how to behave and it's still a fun yeah. environment to be in. Sometimes it's, I feel like I'm completely on the defense because this crowd feels borderline dangerous and mm. I have to be vigilant at all times as mm. to whether someone's going to catapult into me or assault me or something. Like there's such a wide spectrum of that. I think to sort of bring that back to something we were talking about before, just in terms of, I think you mentioned specific kinds of raving you were like, this is not my story to tell. Is there a way that you kind of discern whether something is not your story to tell? Like, can you think of moments when you've been somewhere or considering writing about something and decided it was not your story or not your place? Yeah, there's, um, you know, one of the first principles of put the academic hat on of cultural studies is, is not to have prejudices. Like everybody's cultures are, you know, problem of AC equally valid. If people want to be in a space that's got uh, a lot of heavy drinking and aggressive masculinity going on in it, like straight masculinity in it, go have at it, like go to that space, you know, just, you know, but just be aware of what's sort of the boundaries of what can happen in that universe are. Ah, I don't want to be there, but I'm kind of glad that's over there somewhere. <laughs> people often don't have good filters as to the different qualities and experiences different kinds of nightlife is about. There's a bit of an assumption that, and there's a bit of a privilege about, I should be able to go anywhere and do whatever, that's the punishment mentality. All of the spaces for me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, some spaces are kind of not. And yeah, some maybe you don't need to document at all. And I fictionalize some details to sort of obscure where some particular little pocket scenes might have uh, happened. I still wrote about things that happened in those little universes, but like nobody needs to know that this little thing was gone on for a couple of years in this little space and um, that was not very publicly advertised. There are a few like that. Yeah, like no one needs to know those details, you know. You never know who's reading or who's looking at these things or what kind of attention it might bring, you know. I steered away from writing about the nightlife that's specific to trans women who think of themselves as the dolls. Like they show up as characters in the story, but it's not my experience. So, yeah, I sort of moved away from that a little bit. I wanted to center that techno is black music and always was and that someone like me is an uninvited guest in that space and that's not a, a solvable problem, but it's one that needs to be acknowledged. And so the book's framed by that. But there's queer of colour and nightlife. It's just not my story to tell. I've been in it, but those are not my parties, you know. And sometimes you're told, yeah, if it's full, don't come. <laughs> or get off the dance floor and make, make room for the people who it's actually for, you know. And it's like, yeah, okay, so, like, I, I missed parts of it. It's not for me to be a tourist in that. But same token... You know, people should be free to write about things that aren't just their own narrow experience, but that there's, you know, political concerns when you start to do that. Like you have to start thinking through what it is when you're writing about somebody else's world a lot more intensively. 
Yeah, I guess that ties back. Sometimes I think about, I come from also a design background and mm. something I've kind of heard people say is instead of trying to do no harm, you should just always assume you are going to do harm and think yeah. about ways to mitigate it. And yeah. so thinking about like being transparent about how you're situated in a situation or just thinking about how to be accountable and how to actually repair that when it does come up. So I think that's a useful yeah. way to I'm, Writing is frankly an extractive process, even fiction for that matter. You know, And I think it's better to acknowledge that than figure out had to at least not do the worst versions of that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go in a bit of a tangent direction here and see where it leads me. Mm-hmm. But I think thinking about both occupants of a dance floor or a party and who's going and thinking about how these stories get shared, I think there is some sort of positive or productive friction or difference that can happen. Like when I think about door policies, I think the most interesting door policies are not the ones that promote homogeny within the party, it's the ones that create the most interesting mix of people. So sometimes you need a couple of coworkers who are going to have a mind-blowing experience, but you don't need so many of them that they completely take over <laughs> yeah. the space. Yeah. Um, I think that can maybe also apply with how these stories are getting shared and who's sharing them and where the stories are going. I guess maybe a way to tie that back into a question is like when you're thinking about sharing these stories with different kinds of audiences or publications? Is there a way, I know you mentioned in your classes, for example, you frame things a certain way for that younger audience that might be starting to go out into nightlife and helping them become more of a contributor. Are there other ways you think about reaching different kinds of people with this information and how you frame that? Yeah, I mean, there's a way that door is like the DJ of space, you know, it's like it's blending different kinds of population together a little bit on the dance floor. And yeah, I, I love that about a good party that it's not everybody like me, you know? And yeah, I agree. Like, like a little bit of, a little bit of friction and aggravation is actually not a bad thing. Cause like the thing we don't talk about enough is like everybody brings aggression with them mm-hmm. and it's what you do with it is what really matters. Like how are you going to work out that aggression that, you know, like everybody brought like, how do you work that out, you know? I think there's, there's usually a sharp elbow in most people's first half hour on the dance floor. You're like, get, get the fuck out of my way, you know? But you you got to, like, work through that to something else. So, yeah, let's, let's sort of address that part. This wasn't the first book where I've thought about how is the writing practice connectable at different points to people, community is a word we use maybe a little too freely, but to people in a scene, to people in a situation. So it seemed useful to do something that where, you know, the language would connect to but differ from languages that I hear. I got the terms co-worker and punisher from people in the scene and I've tried to, it's in the notes, you know, you can figure out who I got that from. So there's like a gleaning of language and then a sort of turning it back, turning it over a little bit. Uh, and then doing events that are in spaces that enable you to extend the dialogue a little bit. A lot of people want to talk to me about the book on the dance floor, you know, and it's sort of like, I'm the one, I love that. Like, yeah, by all means, come and say hi. And, you know, you can even tell me you didn't like the book. I'm here for that. <laughs> there just probably won't be an extended discussion, you know, like none of us might be in the state for that. Uh, if one of the things you want to do is add little layers of richness and ongoingness and reflection and critique to a cultural universe, how do you create the little additional layers that that let you do that? Mm -hmm. And like writing's one of those ways. 
Um, photography is one of those ways, like some of the more interesting parties are no photo, right? But then, well, where is the photo? You know, there's pictures of people before they go and stuff like that. How do we document those parts of it that should be documented? How do we have conversations around what we're all doing and where are those conversations? And how do you archive things so that it doesn't all just disappear, you know? Maybe something should disappear, but future dance cultures will be built out of this one and it would be nice if whatever we learned wasn't lost kind of along the way, you know? Mm -hmm. So to me that's sort of cultural work and I don't want to put that in capital letters but just to be, you know, I know some things about how to do that. So can I bring a little bit of the cultural work so that there's resources and conversations and ongoingness so that it's just a little richer and a little finer. Yeah, this is something I think about a lot and that depresses me a lot sometimes mm. because I think on the one hand, everyone often has their own personal archive of a lot of these things. But then I think about the way that a lot of like social media has fed into this and a lot of these websites like Instagram, Facebook, so much of our archive lives in these places that now are often protected by a login wall. And one of the results of that is that things like Wayback Machine can't even archive it. And just in general, like digital content and long-term archiving is a very, feels like a vast problem that isn't really solved. Like there are things like Wayback Machine, but even then, like it's just a bunch of bits and pixels and infrastructure and yeah, just a big mess of that. Yeah, but there's, there's people we know who keep the flyers in a folder mm -hmm. somewhere and you did print scenes, you know, so yeah, how do you, you know, sustain archives in a few different places in a few different forms so that it's helpful for a culture to be able to build, particularly given that, you know, there is these massive global corporate extractive industries out there that just want to suck the marrow out of every little thing that we do if it's ever of any value to them. So how do we keep like a tiny little self-defensive perimeter around a few little things that we would like to be able to experience just as our own culture? And I think also you mentioned the idea of ongoingness, which I know also comes up in the book. I think that's a really interesting way. Now I'm thinking about these ideas of like community versus scene versus situation. And I do think like some parties are just going to be a situation that happens as a one-off moment and that ephemerality can be fine. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's something to be said for building that ongoingness and creating, I mean, even something like writing on raving and some of the events they do at nowadays that are more like panel discussions and talks and weekday gatherings outside the party. Like I do think those can create a little bit more of a community versus just a scene. Um, are there any other thoughts you have on just like the meaning of ongoingness within the context of raving and yeah, just the balance of those ephemeral moments that are meant to disappear versus creating ongoingness or archiving these things more long-term. Yeah, and I forget who I got the word ongoingness from. There's a book called that by uh, some uh, prose poet. And I think one of the little tones in the book is I think we're all nervous about whether there's much ongoingness at all in the world at the moment, you know? You know, how long is any of this going to last, like, you know, like we all feel that and there's a way that a good rave is a way among many other things of dealing with that feeling, you know, that like deep bass tone of like, yeah, this feels like the end of the fucking world, you know. So ongoingness sort of matters, you know, in a very particular way in the sort of limited local 
context when we're skeptical about the ongoingness of the rest of the world, you know. So, yeah, I think building ways of inhabiting together a range of sort of emotional times that feels like they're endurable, that's not nothing, and that there's very particular, you know, sonic landscapes and, you know, structures of the temporality of rave um, that are sort of really specific to this point in time. I feel like good rave time goes sideways, you know, uh, and there's sort of like a bending line, like fewer DJs do that, like three to five act structure that builds up and concludes, you know, because it's like, well, time doesn't feel like that. You know, there aren't happy endings down the road here. So how, how can you feel time go sideways a little bit? That's sort of the sort of aesthetic dimension of the book a little bit is there's sophisticated art here about what it feels like to inhabit this time. And it's a collective art that I think some people are doing very well. And I wanted to say that, you know, in a little bit of detail. But then, yeah, how do you sort of build around that just a little bit? Uh, so to the extent that ongoingness is possible, we're contributing to that, you know. Because, you know, it's, I feel like that's politics to me. Like a word I use a little bit of hesitation because capital P politics gets attached to a lot of things in not helpful ways. But there is a politics to culture to making it uh, open and flexible and non-discriminatory and self-elaborating and autonomous, all of that's really hard. I'm not claiming to have sophisticated answers to how to do that, but here's the little bit that I can do. And here's the people I think I'm working with or trying to work with and collaborate with. And um, in the book, you mention a quote from our friend Nick Bazzano, which is, what would a class analysis of a rave look like? Bad, probably. Maybe it's about class destiny rather than origins. What class does it create? Are ravers an imminent class? Um, could you talk a little bit about class and raving? and just who can access raves, who's excluded. Yeah, and there's, like, definitely exclusion. Who even who can even afford to live in fucking Brooklyn these days is one of the constraints, right? It's interesting to me that you do still get a mix of people um, who do, I, I hate the phrase, like, intellectual labour, you know, but it's like moving symbols around on your laptop labour. There's a lot of people in raves who do that. And you just really need to get off your fucking screen, you know, into your body. Uh, it's a lot of people who do service work. These jobs are just emotionally taxing because they're dealing with people. And so rave is a way of, you know, dissipating that. There are sex workers in this world as well. Um, and that would be three of the flavors. And, and I like I like that. That's like, oh, there's like some people live and work in this world full time. Uh, and there's people who do those other three things and that's most of the crowd. And for some people that's very precarious and temporary. And But there's also people like me who have real secure full-time jobs, you know. So the not only class mixing but friction is, like, good to the extent that you've got some of that. You know, I think that's, like, really necessary to get people sort of out of their bubbles, you know. Mm-hmm. I was just on um, the North Fork of Long Island on the weekend and it's like the white people bomb went off, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, this is like a monoculture that likes it that way and, you know, let me out of here, even though I'm contributing to it, obviously. So, yeah, I think that's kind of one dimension of class. Nick was sort of speculating on something a little different, and the way I read that is, at good rate, everybody's working really fucking hard, and that includes the people who are paid to do that work, 
you know, like there is someone emptying the trash, when it, you know, like there was someone refilling the water. There's obviously there's a DJ, there's lights, there's, you know, security, there's face check, there's all these things going on, you know. But then there's the rest of us who are like doing all of this labor of just fucking dancing and hanging out for nothing. Like it produces nothing at all. The thing it produces is heat. You know, you go to these parties that are a sauna and we made that. <laughs> we just did all this work for nothing. And that's kind of great because I think a lot of us, you know, have that nagging suspicion of like, is my job making the world worse? You know, am I, I have no choice but to work, but is my work making the world worse? So can I just go and do this really hard work that makes nothing? <laughs> so it's like this imminent class of, you know, producing minimal harm. We're still producing a lot of waste and all that, but, you know, for with the constraints that are given us, yeah, like an imminent class of useless labor. Yeah, I love that framing. I think I'm trying to remember the name of the article, but there was this article that Max Pearl wrote for New Inquiry like years ago about those uh, like morning daybreaker raves and how mm. they kind of try to frame that labor into a kind of productivity. Like you can wake up and do this rave thing to be more productive and healthy and things like that. <laughs> and it's it's nice to go to raves where that is not the goal and where yeah. it's just, yeah. just existing. I tried daybreakers, but yeah, for that reason, it's not for me, you know. Although I use actual raves a little bit like daybreakers. I don't shop until four. You know, like I'm not there for, I'm 62 years old. I'm not there for peak hours. You know, I'm not going to last all night anymore. Except when there's an ambient room, like less ambient rooms. You know, I can go and lie down for a little bit. The last time I did that, people kept checking on me to make sure I was okay. Are you okay? And it's like, yeah, I'm just napping, honey. It's fine. I appreciate your concern. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's a good sign if people are checking in. But when you're actually just trying to take a nap, just as I have, sometimes you right? just don't <laughs> There needs to be, like, signage you can put on yourself. I know. Just, just put a little post-it note. Yeah. Yeah, and I do, yeah, the daytime rave does feel like a way, I'm glad we're seeing more of that, at least yeah. here in Brooklyn. I think that sort of thing is maybe more common in like some European cities mm. where parties are going 24 hours. But yeah, being able to wake up and go to the rave and have this experience that feels so disconnected from time and you can feel like it's just deep in the night or whatever time it may be in this dark space and not have to completely be off whatever sleep schedule. Yeah, exactly. Like sometimes I go for openers and then go home and nap and, you know, like just go nap and then come for the closer. So I've just like missed the peak hours bit a little bit. That's been my new move as well. My friend right. and I call it in-betweeners instead of befores <laughs> or afters. It's not the pregame. We just go home in the middle when all the punishers are present and then a little bit. go back yeah. at the end. Yeah. And I guess sort of moving in a different direction. A lot of books about music are more focused on kind of the music itself. I think your book is more focused on raving as a social practice. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how your analysis and writing might differ more from writing about the music itself and kind of how those approaches can complement each other and what maybe the need is for that more social? Yeah, thing? yeah. With all due respect to DJs, there's a lot of writing that centers DJ. And I wanted to center the collective experience. A little bit of a nod to other kinds of labor that's required to make it happen. Uh, but I don't work in nightlife, so I can't, you know, I'm not the person to write directly about that. I was more interested in, in the collective practice of making the space that centers dancers and what dancers bring to it. So, yeah, the book's raving. It's not DJing, you know. Uh, 
Um, I'm often asked if I'm going to DJ and it's like, never. I'm just not, I, I, it's a skill. I get it. Yeah. I would be bad. I'm not even going to start. I'm just going to go see the people I think do that well. Yeah. On the one hand, I always, I never want to gatekeep DJing, but I also feel like there's a little too much of a pressure sometimes to think that everyone needs to become a DJ. And yeah. actually there are so many other roles, including the people on the dance floor and centering that. And I think your framing of that as part of the labor of the party is really interesting. Mm. Like even when I'm DJing, if people are thanking me, I'm like, no, thank you, because mm. my DJing wouldn't be anything without the right people there feeding that energy. And really the best yeah. party is when everyone is contributing something. And that's not to say the space is there if someone needs it and they need mm. to take something from it. Yeah. But also I think yeah. there's a give and take there. And it's when too many people go in with the consumer mindset or that one-off mindset that it becomes a less positive experience for everyone. For everybody. It's, I mean, it is really special when that all comes together and, you know, there's a dance floor, everybody is, you know, has some kind of relationship with each other and with the space and with the music and then sensing that DJs who are just then like, well, let's see how you deal with this, you know, and then you're like, what the fuck just happened? Now we're in this sonic space and you just feel everybody, ah, okay, thank you for that. We'll figure out what we're going to do with that. And wait a minute, now you've got this other thing for us, you know? Well, this is what we think about that, you know, like sometimes it just all comes together like that. Not all that commonly though, and not always for very long blocks of time. You know, I think those big moments kind of can be a little rare and that's kind of makes that special and thing to go looking for. Although you can't chase it as um, my rave and trans mom at one point had to pull me aside as like, you can't chase it, you know, like it comes when it wants. <laughs> yeah, this is something I've had trouble. Sometimes I'm like, I want to go to a certain number of parties a month. I want to be able to predict which one will be the special one, but it's never the one you think it is. And yeah, you can never force that coalescence of all the different ingredients and sometimes it's the night when you think you're going to be there for an hour and you're going to go support your friend and then go to bed mm. and then that turns out to be the thing that totally unfurls into the magic moment and yeah I think yeah. that randomness is a bit of the magic too though like you just yeah. don't really know when all the ingredients are going to coalesce and yeah I think it works best when it takes you a little bit by surprise you know I was I said a party that had a, a very well-known headliner and it was set was great but a lot of people had the cameras out to just film it, you know, and so the whole front line was sort of that. And it's like, oh, this all sounds great, but it's not the vibe. And the person who followed them is wonderful and has a following and all that, but it's not, you know, this like global superstar. And everybody is just like, oh, this is really great. Let's just vibe with this. And it's, oh, okay. And then it's, oh, this is, that's when it started to happen, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sometimes it just sneaks up on you and uh, like a little, pocket of time opens up where there's more time in it you know that, to me that's my language for uh, when it feels special and I guess that sort of brings up some questions about that sort of casual documentation in general and sort of I guess I'm not on TikTok but the kind of TikTokification <laughs> of the rave like do you think there are ways for this culture to I guess coexist with that in a positive way like I personally also like I don't want to be on a dance floor where everyone has their mm. phones out filming I also have been known to stand at the back of the dance floor and take my little 30 second video so I can remember a moment. I like to think that there's a way to do it respectfully, but then there's also the question of how that content gets disseminated or shared. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the book's got pictures in it and a lot were taken at no photo parties, frankly. And I was just trying to like skirt the boundaries of that a little bit. 
So there aren't really people in the pictures. I was photographing, trying to photograph ambiences. I was kind of interested in what's in, how do you photograph an ambience? Also, lighting design is so crucial to all this, you know, like it doesn't have to be elaborate, but how people think about lighting and space really helps. And I wanted to have some images of where I thought that had been done really beautifully. So I'm sort of way up the back, you know, just sort of like taking this little discrete picture. One of the pictures in the book, you can see someone putting their hand over my phone. And he was right. I was too close. To, I was trying to photograph the ceiling, you know, like I was, I was high at the time. I'm like, whoa. And he was right. I'm like too close to the edge of the dance floor. I'm disrupting. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I admit it. I'm in the wrong here and I'll just step away. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of cameras out on the – there's parties that are for that. There are places you can go. And I was at one once that sort of mixed – ravers maybe in our sense of the word with like more of a club kid vibe and it's like well you know what we just had different sides of the dance floor and it's like over there people are making videos of each other and over here we're not you know and that's fine just you have a different use of the space and I respect it and that's often people who aren't special anywhere in their fucking lives no one thinks they're anything but in this world that they've created of imaging each other they matter like I get it you know just not what I particularly want to do. So it's like, okay, there's spaces for that. I really love the spaces that are not about that. It's still a relation to technology, you know, but really not the least thing you can say about a good rave is it keeps people off their phones for hours. And kind of coming back to the book, um, you mentioned in the book that you had to turn it around on a really tight timeline. I think it was about two months. Is there anything you would have done differently if you had more time to work on it? You know, I think of writing a little bit like jazz, you know, like it's written in relation to time. There's like a performative dimension to writing. I, I re-edit a lot, but I think it's sort of there's a perfectionism where people feel that, you know, like you can't release things until you've refined it to within an inch of its life. And it's like, no, I like it with a couple of little flaws in it and stuff, you know, like mm -hmm. DJs who never release, you know, like live sets because there was like one blend they didn't like. And it's like, have you listened to Coltrane? You know, there's a bum note on every Coltrane record and it doesn't matter. <laughs> He'll have done something amazing and then the tone is just not quite right on one note in some huge long solo, you know. Doesn't matter, you know. This book was a little special to me because after I um, went on hormones, I lost the ability to write at all. Like nothing really worked. I could turn around commissioned articles, but I couldn't do this, you know, sort of finer art of it at all. When Margaret Grebowitz, the series editor, asked me if I could do a book for the practices series in three months, you know, I'm a little prone to mania as well. And so in a manic moment, I'm like, hell yeah, I can do that. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> But that pressure was sort of enabling and I think I found the voice that I write in now in this book. I, feel like I love this little book, you know, like you have different relations to different works that you've done, but this one's a little special, I think. Yeah, sometimes those constraints can be helpful. And I do agree, like, sometimes I think also having some rough edges to something adds a little humanity. Like yeah. when I'm hearing a DJ set, I actually really like hearing someone bring something in and kind of fix it on the fly. Or <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I think if something's too polished and smooth too, I almost feel like it's not. Someone once told me that if you're not making one mistake an hour while you're DJing, you're probably not taking enough risks. And I really tried ah, to take that to that's heart. That's a good way to phrase it. Yeah. 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 I mean, you want to see somebody at like the edge of their art a little bit too, you know, mm -hmm. out of just at the edge of the comfort zone. Yeah. 
And I appreciate that as a dancer too. Like, oh, yeah, you thought that was going to go there and it didn't quite, but, you know, a risk was taken. Sometimes it kind of brings you back to your body on the dance floor too, mm, in a way, if something right? kind of jars you, like if yeah. something's too hypnotic, you can kind of zone out, which can be a good state to reach. But mm. sometimes I like those jarring moments of remembering that I'm in a space with people and that someone is actively controlling the music. Yeah. And- there was a beloved Sydney DJ who's passed called Andy Glitra. And I remember dancing to Andy and it all just fucking suddenly stopped. And he just yells out, wrong side. And he flipped the record over and just, like, he didn't care. He's like, this was what I wanted you to hear. <laughs> and we're all just like, oh, fuck, we're dancing to music. Yeah, you're right. Here we are. And it's like, oh, that's what he wanted us to hear, not the other remix, you know. <laughs> kind of winding this down and coming back to where we started here, I was curious. We talked first about what the last review went to was. What is the next rave you're going to and do you have any of intentions or hopes around that? Ah, I don't currently have a plan for what the next thing is. Yeah. There's sort of, it is a little seasonal and some things are winding down. Some beloved parties are either ending or happening less frequently. I also feel like I've got to find some new parties. I, I've been going and saying, I got in a bit of a groove with things that I like and I have to like, experiment a little bit. So yeah, I'm actually not sure. I just hope it's soon because I do need to actually be fucking dancing, mm-hmm. even if it's just in the club around the corner, you know, on a Tuesday. Because that also can be kind of great, you know. You just go hang out uh, with some people you know. Yeah, and and I dance. guess we're lucky here in New York to have so many options. And, yeah, it's so easy to get into these patterns and grooves of things we're doing. But then there's also just infinite worlds here that <laughs> I'm totally unaware of and that are someone else's whole life. So it's always interesting that you can. Yeah, I got I got to put myself back in that. I, I went to something a little while ago. I was like, oh, I don't know who does door here. You know, they're not doing tickets at the door anymore and no one's going to help me, you know, I'm like, oh, shit, like, who can I text? You know, like, who do I know? I don't know anybody here. People knew me, like someone found me a spare ticket, you know. But it's like, it's been a while, just that stony face. It's like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of nice to put yourself in that position. A little bit to be reminded of that, yeah. So that was all I had for questions. Is there anything you would like to add or shout out that you have coming up or anything? Uh, I have another book coming out uh, September 26, which is called Love and Money, Sex and Death, which is exactly what it's about. It's a series of letters and one of which is about dance floor and, and all that. So it does connect to the previous book a little bit. Cool. Looking forward to checking that out. And thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. It was, it was fun. It was yeah, delightful. It was fun. Thank you, Elise. Thank you for listening to this RA Exchange with Mackenzie Wark. Many thanks to Elise Courier for moderating this conversation and to Mackenzie Wark for her wonderful insight. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on RA.co or on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. If you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or stories you'd like to share, please send us an email at exchange at RA.co. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.